Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'm very pleased to welcome you all to our event, Red or Green. We organised this event to give a space to reflect on the significance of the recent German election for progressives in general and the left in particular, not just in Germany, but beyond as well. And if you followed the election, you'll have seen that it was a bit of a roller coaster. At one point, it looked like the Greens were going to displace both the traditional parties. But then in the end, of course, the Social Democrats narrowly came out on top. And I'm particularly delighted to welcome our speaker today to guide us through this and to give us some thoughts about how to understand the significance of this election. Our speaker is Dr. Tariq Abu Chadi. Tariq is Associate Professor of uh, Comparative European Politics at the University of Oxford, and he studied political uh, politics and sociology at Humboldt University in Berlin. He also studied in um, Brussels and at New York University for a while. And later he taught at the universities of Amsterdam and in Zurich. And he's published widely on questions of parties, elections, the formation of voter preferences, and all of that in its relationship to broader social and economic changes, especially in post-industrial societies. I mean, I won't go listing all his articles now, but you can find them in some of the leading scholarly journals in the area. He's also the principal investigator of a large research project it's called Social Status and the Transformation of Electoral Behaviour, which is funded by the Swiss Foundation, uh, the Swiss National Science Foundation. And not least, he has a very interesting podcast called The Transformation of European Politics, which has some uh, excellent material on um, uh, leading thinkers in his area. Well, in all of this work, one of his central concerns has been with exploring how social democratic parties can succeed in post-industrial societies. And indeed, he's in the process with a collaborator on writing a manuscript book on that subject. So I'm particularly pleased to be able to um, introduce him to you tonight and to see what insights he can bring to our seminar. Tarek's going to speak for about 30 minutes or so, and then there's going to be another maybe 15 minutes of so-called chair-led discussion. That means I get to ask him questions. And then we're going to turn it over to, to all of you um, to ask questions yourself. Please um, put them in the chat. There's information in the Q&A. There's information about how to do that there. And apologies in advance if we don't get to go through each and every one of them. But before I turn to Tarek to start, just let me ask you to at least metaphorically join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Tarek Abuchadi. And I'll just do this because we can't do it otherwise. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Robin. Uh, thanks for the very nice introduction and uh, thanks for, for having me and giving me an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, the German election, but also then my broader uh, research agenda, which is focusing on, as you already mentioned, social democratic parties, um, but also in the competition really with green parties. So th this is the focus of the talk, right? I'm not going to talk about all aspects of the German election, but really with a bit of a focus on this, as I also call the competition between red and green, between 
uh, the Social Democrats and the Green Party in the election. But I also want to um, talk about these questions in a little bit of a broader manner. So first, I'll run you through really um, the results of the election, but also a little bit the, the underlying voter streams and questions of who voted for whom. Then the question of what happened, especially focusing on the Social Democrats, as you mentioned, this um, result certainly came as a surprise to many people. So I'll again show some data, mostly focusing on the exit polls, uh, on, on, on what happened. In the third part, then I want to talk a little bit more about the general um, bigger picture of what's happened to Social Democratic parties in the last two decades or so, and also uh, show, share with you a little bit of research uh, that we've done on, on that question. So to end then also a bit more on the, uh, with, a, with a more in-depth perspective um, from a political science view on these questions. So let me start with, and this is, I'm sure everyone's familiar with, just again to, to the election result. Uh, and as you can see, uh, the German Social Democrats, the SPD, came out as the strongest party in front of the, the union parties with leading uh, with about 2%. What I should emphasize is that this is actually remarkable in the German context. And this, the SPD has only been uh, ahead of the union parties uh, four times in German post-war history. Twice Gerhard Schröder and once Willy Brandt in a really uh, historical election in 1972. So that alone is something that's quite remarkable. The second remarkable result is, of course, uh, the result of the Greens with nearly 15%, which is their historically best result. This is close to doubling their uh, their vote share from the last election. Um, and while, and again, I think most people are familiar with this, um, they were still seeing this as a bit of a disappointment because obviously during the campaign, they were polling much higher um, and for a long time in front of the SPD. And then their results kind of reversed and the, the Social Democrats came out as the strongest party. And so the question is a little bit of how we can explain this. And I'm sure there are lots of questions later on also um, about the campaign specifics and so on that I'm, that I'm happy to answer. One thing that we should um, just focus on with, with that election result, the question of what happens now, what you see is the coalition options that just mathematically come out of this election result. Um, so you see what's possible here um, with also the, the specific German names for this, Ampel Coalition, Traffic Light, or Jamaica, and so on. Um, what's important really is um, that out of all these options, it's now quite clear what the next coalition is going to be. The, this is the so-called Traffic Light Coalition, so the Social Democrats, um, the FDP, this is like, you know, liberal, um, more center-right liberal party, uh, and the Greens together, they're already now um, decided to take up negotiations. And it's quite clear that this is going to be the next, uh, that, that this is going to be the next coalition. I think most people don't have a lot of doubt anymore, but they still have to negotiate, of course. So um, some things can still happen, but this is going very likely going to be the next, uh, the next coalition. Again, um, later on, if you want to speculate, if you want me to speculate about certain aspects, um, I'm happy to. Okay, let's look at what, what happened a little more. Um, and what, what I'm going to show you here is uh, estimates of vote switching between the last federal election and this federal election. And here you see the net transfers between the Social Democrats, the SPD, and all other parties. And what you can see here is that the biggest gains by far for the SPD came from the conservative CDU CSU. This is really where the biggest gains ca came from. And in addition, also quite a lot of uh, voters shifted from uh, the left party. 
something we think is very likely to a certain degree strategic voting too, because it was clear that there was a chance that um, for the first time in, in, a, in a long time, there could be a chancellor that's not coming from the CDU-CSU. So many people on the left um, had the strategic impulse to vote for the SPD as a, as a strategic uh, vote. However, you can already see here that in, in competition with the Greens, the SPD actually lost voters, right? So in terms of net transfers, the Social Democrats lost to the Greens and didn't gain from them. Now, if we switch and look at the Greens, you can see that the Greens actually won from all parties. What's interesting, however, is that they won more voters from the center-right than from the center-left. So you can see again here, the largest share uh, comes from the CDU-CSU, the union parties, um, but also a considerable share from the liberal FDP. So what's interesting is that what this means is that there hasn't been a strong intra-block vote switch, but actually quite a lot of voters switched from um, the right to the left, from um, the union and the FDP to the Greens and to the SPD, and that competitively the Greens could really gain much more from um, the right party's right of center than from the SPD. And this is something I'll come back to later when we're talking about strategies and, and positioning of social democratic parties in general. One thing that's very interesting um, and might also be interesting for people, especially in the UK, is that we've seen a new age cleavage really emerging or intensifying uh, in German elections. And, and here you see the voting behavior of the under 25 year olds and the over 70 year olds. And what you can see is that the two mainstream parties, the, the CDU-CSU and the SPD, uh, they dominate among older voters, but find quite little support uh, among the under 25 year olds. Among those younger voters, you can see that the Greens and the FDP um, so right, the, the, the progressive parties, especially the Greens, they receive a much higher vote share. So in contrast to, for example, Labour, um, the SPD is actually not very strong uh, among young voters, but much more among older voters. And I'll show a little more about this in a second. So if we now focus a little more on what happened, how did we, how did we get there, right? Why did the SPD uh, end up winning this election? Um, we can look at who they gained from, right? So again, this is from the exit poll. So the question is, uh, who voted SPD based on occupations? And here you can see that the largest gains come from this group that's uh, RentnerInnen, which means pensioners. So the, the SPD gained 11 points among pensioners and only three, three points among uh, ArbeiterInnen, which means workers. Right. So really, the big gain came from older voters, especially pensioners. And again, I think this is something that might be surprising for some people in other countries, uh, but it's actually quite in line also with um, the Biden election in, in the US and uh, where also bigger gains uh, among pensioners made uh, a big difference. Again, you can look at this in terms of age groups here, you again see the, you see the support and the gains, and you see that the biggest support group for the SPD is uh, the over 70-year-olds. And there's only very little support uh, among young voters, even among the uh, less than 34-year-olds, right? So maybe not even that young anymore. Uh, the SPD further lost in this election, and these voters mainly um, went to the Greens, right? So this means two things. On the one hand, this is 
good for the social democrats because old people uh, are ready to have many more and they are much more likely to turn out. So this is something that is electorally paying off. However, if you look at this from a more cohort change perspective, then the SPD has this big problem that still, despite this win now, they're not appealing to younger voters um, who are much more supportive of the Greens. So if they don't manage to change this pattern, um, they will over time lose and might lose their position as the strongest party of this left bloc. And this is something that's actually um, quite uh, happening to quite a couple of social democratic parties um, in, in Western Europe, where they're losing out uh, younger voters. And this is really a cohort change much more than, than just, an, just an age effect. If you ask people, yeah, this is just straight out ask people who voted for the SPD, what was the most important thing for the, your voting decision? then 36% say the candidate. And this is really a large, large number for the Greens and the CDU. This is just about 10%, right? So nearly as many people say candidate as program. And this has also been the, the common narrative in understanding this election, that this was about Scholz, that this was the candidate. Scholz was just a stronger candidate than Laschet and Baerbock, the candidates of the, the CDU and the Greens. And because of this, the SPD could win the election in the end. And this is certainly true. However, if you've studied um, voting behavior, right, we, we as a discipline have done this now for, uh, for over 70 years, and we know that candidates can never be the whole story. So one thing I'm going to show you now for the SPD, and then I'm going to broaden this perspective a little bit later, is this, um, this is part, this is, data from the uh, Comparative Manifesto project that was published in a blog post. And what you can see here is the, um, the position of the SPD over time divided into a socio-cultural uh, position and a socio-economic position, right? So the right is more the traditional left-right in economic terms and A, panel A is more a progressive versus authoritarian scale, second dimension cultural. And what you can see that this election in 2021, especially if you take the two just together, has really been um, the most left-wing, left-progressive program of the SPD in decades. So I think this is really interesting if we focus, A, on Scholz, the Canada, quite a centrist, but we see that the SPD actually ran on their most progressive, most left-progressive program in, in decades and won this, uh, won this election with that program. So I think this is important, just looking at the SPD um, for this election. And now also when I'm trying to connect this a bit to the broader, uh, the broader research on the development of social democratic parties. Um, and this is what I, what, what I want to do now, where um, for social democratic parties, what we, what we know and what we've observed, generally social democratic parties in Western Europe is that we've seen an electoral crisis, right? This is something that everyone has read about and nearly everyone has written about is that social democratic parties in Western Europe have seen strong losses in vote shares in the last 10 to 20 years, especially um, in the last 10 years, uh, like elections in France and the Netherlands and so on, historically bad results. There are many narratives around what has happened here that can be summarized as an economic and a cultural narrative. In both of these narratives, the idea is that um, social democratic parties have lost their core constituency, the working class, right? Their former core constituency, 
uh, because of their either economic or cultural positions. The, the economic narrative more strongly focuses on the more centrist or neoliberal policies enacted by New Labour, the Neue Mitte, Blair, Schröder, and so on. So the idea is here that these um, economic positions have alienated uh, the working class and social democratic parties have lost these voters. The cultural narrative then focuses more on their second dimension positions. Here the idea is that social democratic parties are just too progressive on questions of gender equality, LGBT rights, environmental issues, and of course, especially immigration. And then there the idea is that because of these two progressive positions, social democratic parties have lost, again, working class voters, especially to the radical right, right? This is the idea. Radical right is the new workers party. Um, they have gained the support from social democratic parties. And because of this, we're currently seeing the, this electoral crisis of social democracy. We have worked on this in many different pro uh, projects. We're also a bigger group of researchers investigating this at the moment. And there's actually very little empirical support for this, um, especially the cultural narrative um, finds very little support in, in, in many analyses we've done. I want to show you one piece of evidence that I think is, uh, is quite telling here. And this is if for the last 20 years, since 2000, in the seven countries you see here, we can simply ask, well, where did former social democratic voters go to, right? So to which party families did social democratic parties lose the most voters or lose voters overall? And what you can see here is that R, this is uh, RR, this is the radical right, only a very small share of former social democratic voters switched to the radical right. So losses to the radical right really can explain um, the current electoral crisis. In contrast, social democratic parties have lost by far their most voters to green and left libertarian parties. So to parties that are more progressive than social democratic parties on cultural questions. So the idea that, uh, that social democratic parties have lost because they're too progressive on these so-called cultural issues um, can really stand up here because they've lost many of their voters to more culturally progressive uh, parties and they've actually lost very few voters to the radical right. In cases where we have panel data, we can also track this over a longer period of time. And for example, in Germany, we can show that the um, today's AFD voters are not former social democratic voters, just to a very small share, that's the case. And these are more people who have never voted before or voted for the mainstream right. Also, what we can show for social democratic parties is that overproportionately, they've lost educated voters. They've lost in all groups, right? Um, in all directions, in all groups. However, the overproportionate it's actually been educated voters. So again, it's not that there's been a dominant switch away from social democratic parties among the working class, but rather um, the other way around. Now, this is the crisis narrative, right? And also have some empirical facts on the crisis. However, in the last years, we've actually seen now a couple of elections where social democratic parties won, right? Uh, starting with Denmark in 2019, but also in Finland, in Norway, now in Germany. So there have been a couple of elections where social democratic parties won. However, as people have observed, this happened with still very low vote shares. This happened with quite historically low vote shares in many cases. So the question is a bit, what do we do with this? Right? Is this now a resurgence of social democracy or what can we do with that 
information. One main thing here is that we need to take into account just generally fragmentation of party systems, right? This is something that's happened in nearly or happening in all uh, Western European party systems, and especially where the electoral system allows for stronger uh, fragmentation. Uh, we see this, uh, we see the stronger fragmentation. And so the, the goal of social democratic parties, of course, needs to be the strongest to, to be the strongest party in this multi-party space. And it's it's much less relevant to compare the vote shares to the glorious 70s or so on. But the, their goal really needs to be to be the strongest party in a coalition that is closest to their ideal point. And so with, with taking this into account, what we as, as social scientists, as political scientists need to do is we need to understand which factors are more nationally contingent and what are actually comparative structural factors um, that allow us to understand under what conditions social democratic parties come out strongest in this fragmented field. And something we have done as a group of researchers is we have looked at the positional strategies of um, social democratic parties in this multi-party space. So the question of with what, uh, what positions they can take and try to analyze when these strategies or which of these strategies are more or less successful. Um, what we've done here, this is just a schematic representation of these potential strategies. So you see a couple of different party families, right? You see the radical right, the center right, and the liberals in a typical two-dimensional space. So you see the, uh, the x-axis is the typical economic left-right from status politics to market liberal politics, left-right. And then we have at the, the other axis, this is what we can often call uh, the cultural dimension from progressive to more conservative uh, national authoritarian positions. And in this space now, we, we drew four ideal typical ideas of what social democratic party strategies could look like. Right? These are not necessarily real parties, but this is, this is a combination of these two dimensions that we call old left, new left, left national and centrist. So these are all realistic positions within um, a, a social democratic field, but they combine different positions differently. Um, so the old left really is an idea of quite um, strongly economic left-wing, uh, economic left-wing positions. However, not um, such a strong emphasis on uh, progressive politics, and there are a bit more variation in terms of um, these cultural cultural positions. The new left, in contrast, there the strong emphasis is on uh, being culturally progressive, but also still economically left-wing, often with a stronger emphasis on what we would call social investment policy. So investment in uh, education, for example, training, childcare, and these things. Then we have a centrist position, why right? this is more centrist on both dimensions. And then we have this left national strategy. Here the idea is really, and this is something that's been uh, is, actively or less actively promoted in, in, in many uh, newspapers and debates and so on. Here the idea is a bit that social dem democracy can win back, especially working class voters, by combining a more economically left-wing position with a um, position that's more conservative on the second dimension, especially with more restrictive positions on immigration. 
again, what you see here, this is still not a radical right position, right? But this is still some a, 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 a um, more national authoritarian, but not at, at, the, at the height of the radical right. So this is a, this is the often associated also with Denmark uh, strategy. Now, what we wanted to do in our work, we wanted to empirically assess um, which of these strategies are most promising. And as I already said, is this, these are not necessarily positions, these are ideal types, right? These are not necessarily positions um, that are taken by, by a lot of parties exactly like this. So what, what we did is in um, six countries, uh, we run a couple of survey experiments. And the idea here is that people get vignettes of stylized social democratic programs. So they see two programs in front of them that vary on nine issue dimensions. For example, in questions of immigration, integration, but also early retirement, uh, rent increases, and so on. And those social democratic parties then show uh, different positions on this, and people have to decide which of these two social democratic parties they prefer. And so then we they, they, they do this a couple of times and pick which, uh, which program they prefer. We did this in six countries in 2020 and 21. And based on this, we can do two things. We can um, bundle our findings and in, 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 into these ideal types that I presented to you. And then we can see how people rated these programs. And we can do what's called a conjoined experiment. So we can actually estimate which single position they took had what type of impact on um, a program being chosen or not. And I'm going just to show you uh, some some. It's very simple results uh, of this um, in order to, uh, to, to make our point of which strategies have been more successful. Um, the first is here you see now um, the, the effect of certain types of issue bundles, right? There's four idealized program types that I described before on a program being chosen. And what you can see here is that there's not much of a difference between an old left and a new left pro program, but these two are much more popular than the left nationalist and uh, the centrist program, right? So if you, if you bundle these, uh, these issues together to, uh, to make an assessment of how popular these idealized types are, then we can see that an old left program and a new left program are the ones that find the most support, much more than a left national and a centrist program. Um, what we can also do with this, um, again, and I'm, you, you don't have to focus on everything here. You know, there, there's a lot going on. This is now every issue lined up. And we can, for every position here on every item, we can see how this affected a program being chosen. Um, and the, the, the four uh, topics at, at the top are more cultural issues and the bottom are more economic issues. And what we find, I'm just going to summarize this, is that culturally conservative positions get really punished by potential social democratic voters. So you see this negative effect of strong reduction of immigration, headscarf ban, no gender quota, um, or no, no increase of CO2 taxation. Here you always see that this has a strong negative effect. So again, what we find is that if a uh, social democratic program contains a move toward this more uh, national authoritarian poll, then potential social democratic voters become much less likely to pick this program. For economic positions, what we mostly find is that economically left-wing positions are also actually 
more uh, more popular, strongest effect here is early retirement. So we find that early retirement is something that is, that is very popular in the electorate. But also, for example, uh, job protection is something um, that's quite popular. So here overall, we find that a economically um, left-wing programs create are, are popular, and also if you look into more detail, create very few trade-offs. Culturally progressive issues or just cultural issues. Um, create somewhat more uh, trade-offs, but what we generally find is that culturally conservative positions get punished by potential social democratic voters. Okay, to sum up, just as a conclusion, I, I want to end on three propositions that I'm sure uh, give some room for a discussion now based on our general, uh, general findings and, and on, on the specifics of the German election. The first proposition is that in a or the, the, the fact that we are now in a multi-party and multi-issue space means that we need to re-evaluate uh, social democratic strategies and also what success means in these systems. And so also what we need to re-evaluate is what a successful strategy is and what a benchmark for a successful strategy should be. Second proposition is that progressive positions for social democratic parties are a necessary condition for future electoral success, our findings really do not show that a more national authoritarian uh, left-wing national strategy is something that uh, social democratic parties could be successful with, especially looking into the future. The third proposition is that um, we should realize that social democratic policy is not only based on the success of social democratic parties. And that means two things. The first is that even if we find that conservative strategies are a vote winner for social democratic parties, we need to ask the question, well, how much is gained for social democratic policy or the social democratic ideal if we just then have more right-wing social democratic uh, parties governing? And second is that we have other parties in party systems, especially green parties, um, who also represent ideals of social democracy uh, in the 21st century. So the question should really be for social democratic policy, um, what is beneficial for these, um, for the progressive coalition to be able to lead governments? Yes, that's it uh, for me for the, for the talk. Thank you. Listen, thank you so very much. I mean, that's very stimulating talk and uh, covering a wide range of issues from the sort of immediate commentary on the election through to some, some deeply thought out empirical findings. Um, as I said, I'm going to start by posing a, a few questions to you. We'll see, see how we go. We don't want to go for too long, so we can give the audience a bit of a go too. But I wanted to start, I mean, it was very striking, this table you put up about the extent to which left economic positions mark to the policies of the German Social Democratic Party in the current election. And that's been widely commented upon in other countries that an emphasis, well, not so much on left policies, but on economic security was central. Housing, pensions, above all else, uh, minimum wage, I believe. So I wanted to ask you to reflect on that. I mean, was that why was that important? Sometimes it's said to be important because it appealed to people in the northern part of the former GDR, but was it of more general significance? And most particularly of all, I wanted you to reflect on whether the fact that the election took place after the pandemic is relevant to its importance. Because one might imagine that there was a sense that 
we need to pull risks again in a way that mightn't have been so important in the wake of the pandemic. And that, that sensibility might have strengthened the appeal of this economic security agenda. So it's a slightly convoluted question, but what, what, what is the significance of the economic security aspect of this, this left economic policy, especially in the context of the pandemic? Mm. So I think where we need to start first is that the actual election campaign was not very policy focused. I think that this, this needs to be the honest assessment of, of what has happened in this election campaign um, is that in, in the end, uh, policy questions were in center stage. I guess the only larger policy question was climate change. Um, that was really center stage in the campaign. And then many other um, other aspects, really candidates also dominated in, in, in the campaign in itself. Um, this is not surprising given the fact that, right, the, for that this was the, the, the end of the Merkel era. And the, the big question was who would be the next chancellor? And I, I like to say this, and I'm, I'm, that I'm, I'm not that young anymore, but for me, it was the first time that I voted that um, Angela Merkel wasn't uh, metaphorically at least on the ballot. Right, so this is this shows that dominance, and this also why the candidates mattered so much. However, I think the economically left-wing positions mattered for two reasons, and also the process of getting there, really, with the new leadership and so on. The first is internally in the in in the party. Um, you, you could really see uh, that there was a new gained. Um, belief in, in the party and a willingness for activists to campaign and to really um, do something for the, for the social democrats. And there was a new a motivation and, and a new enthusiastic environment. And for those who speak German, I can really recommend that there's just been a documentary released um, that has accompanied Kevin Kühnert, was the head of the, of the Young Socialists for a while and then became a quite a prominent figure quite quickly. And they accompanied him for the last three years. And there you can really see also how the mood in the party changed um, with this changing of the guards in terms of the, of the leadership. And the second, and this is quite speculation, but very much in line with the, with the more general findings that I presented, is that I think the um, so the the more left wing but also more progressive positions gave the social democrats a credibility back among um, voters who care about left wing and progressive positions. So as, especially right the turn away also from the Hartz reforms and so on. So people started believing again that actually something like progressive politics are possible with the social democrats. And I think this is one reason that they didn't lose more to the Greens. The, the, the Greens really had strong momentum. And so then it, it, it came down to that candidate question. But the fact that people who are left-wing and progressive decided to vote for the SPD because of Scholz was only possible because basically um, in terms of, of policy positions, there wasn't such a huge difference. Um, and so it was important to gain that credibility back in, the, in that share of the electorate. And I think this is something that these positions did. Now the question with COVID. So I think COVID mattered, but maybe a little bit differently. So I haven't seen any evidence yet that has convinced me of, of the idea that COVID has made people more solidaric and this is, this is now causing this revival of social democrats. Because if we're honest, this is what we thought after the global economic and financial crisis too. And then basically the opposite happened, right? Then the big crisis for social democratic parties started. Um, so I, I haven't seen that momentum in that regard. And I also think that COVID hasn't directly 
affect the voting decisions so much. However, what it's been is kind of this white noise, right? This has been on, on, on the agenda every day. Um, and so it was very difficult for other issues to be broadly discussed because it took, took away so much space without discriminating strongly in, in, in terms of voting decisions. And what I also, and this is really, again, this is quite speculative, but COVID, so what I certainly don't remember a time and probably no one else does, where political decisions affected our daily life so much as during the last year and a half, right? And so this gives people a different sense of politics. And in this context, it seems more difficult to me to get support for or, or, or to, to get people interested in these like long-term um, processes like climate change, right? If, if you're all of a sudden so used to politics defining your everyday life and then you're supposed to vote on something that's very abstract, then uh, I think that might that, that might be more difficult. Hmm, thanks. Um, you know, I, I I think it's 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 possible uh, that what you say is is true about it. But I, I suppose there is this difference between the global financial crisis and the COVID pandemic. That the global financial crisis damaged those that were pursuing market solutions by showing that the market could be very damaging itself. But in the COVID case, there was no other option but state action. I mean, there is no neoliberal strategy for mm -hmm. dealing with COVID. So in a much more nebulous way, arguments about the state and its role might have been legitimised. I mean, I'm really just coming back to the same question, but is there anything in that at all? Is there anything at a loose level that suggests that? I mean, not so much at a specific policy level. Mm -hmm. So I mean, what it in, in in the specific case of of Germany, what you could really see is that this gave Olaf Scholz a a, a really good platform for him, mm. right? So he, he was just very visible, but he could also show that he's not only this, you know, the black zero type of uh, that break type of Scholz, but that he was actually willing to uh, right to, to to have these more uh, Keynesian Keynesian policies and, and to push them through. However, as, as other people understand more of this than me, I'll like to point out that the, the short-term reaction to the, to the financial crisis, especially, was also very Keynesian, right? It's crisis Keynesianism, I think, as Peter Hall calls it. And then afterwards is when the austerity discourse won. And I think at that period, we haven't even reached yet. So I think there's one big question also for the next German government is, is where this is going to go. No, that's 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 a very well taken point. Let, let me try a, a different question with you, um, but perhaps slightly more scholarly question that maybe some of our audience would be interested in. I mean, there's a well-known thesis that uh, hails from Adam Jaworski about the so-called dilemma of electoral socialism. I'm sure you, I'm sure you're familiar with, and the argument is that in appealing to um, and in appealing to voters beyond the core working class, which social democratic parties necessarily have to do, they erode the salience of class and their core working class vote. Now, you, the, the, the general evidence at the end did not seem to, um, but I, I wonder whether you could reflect further on that. And in particular, you know, the very earliest responses to that thesis were from Scandinavian sociologists like uh, Just Esping Anderson, who, who argued that actually coalition was central and leading a, a strong coalition was central. 
So it's really a two-part question. I mean, what evidence is there of this dilemma-like trade-off that Javorsky identified and which scholarship has returned to in recent years as a source of interest? And secondly, does your evidence towards the end about the importance of coalitions point to a sort of Esping-Anderson-like response to that? Yeah, I think what the other response is already also by, by, by Herbert Kitschold in his, in his 1994 book, where he also deals with, uh, with mm -hmm. Kitschowski's uh, thesis in, in, in quite a bit of detail. And I think an important point is that uh, this, the, the, this, the, the, there is a top-down potential by political parties to shape these class associations. And that it's not only the working class per se that is bound to social democratic parties, but that parties have agency in creating these associations with political parties, right? And this, I guess, also where Esping Anderson comes in, um, and then especially in, in, in terms of, you know, universalism as a social democratic concept, as it's, of course, was very, or is very successful in Northern Europe in shaping these kinds of coalitions. I also think that in, in, in the changing political space that we're in, it's very important to think of coalitions um, and, and, and the trade-offs, right, electoral coalitions and the trade-offs uh, more than um, and, and just, just in this, through this perspective of class voting. And I think what's, what's, what's so important is what has happened also after Pshorsky in, in, in the sense of socio-structural change and socio-economic change. And the, the, the expansion into what, 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 again, Peter Hall would call the, the knowledge economy, right? So really, I think people, and especially social democratic politicians too, underestimate often the amount of this change, the, the massive educational upgrading that we've seen, um, the, the, the decrease, numerical decrease of the industrial working class. And then the question of, and, and, and this is what we need to re elaborate or what are actually the trade-offs between these uh, groups of voters that social democratic parties or the left needs to appeal to in their coalition. And what's often done is that this is then based on opinion surveys, right? So people say, well, we know that working class voters are more against immigration and educated middle-class voters are more in favor of immigration. So here's a trade-off. That's not per se true because the question, the crucial question is that people base their vote on this, right? And attitudes don't make trade-offs yet. And so what we actually find again in these studies is that there are very few of these strong uh, different trade-offs where really one group goes in one direction, another group goes in another direction. But very often is that we, with, with cultural issues in the potential social democratic electorate, the people who really care about this are the people who are actually progressive. And with, with, for example, less educated working class voters, we see that not that much happens based on the issue of immigration. There, the, the economic issues are much more important. And so and this is also something I've written in, in, in other publications is that the, that the social democratic coalition is one that needs to combine these more progressive uh, positions on the second dimension with economically left-wing positions. Because again, and this may be my final point on this, is also our image of who the working class is, is often so stuck in the 1970s, right? If I, when I say working class, or if I said draw a worker, what people will draw is a white male in the industrial sector. 
this is the idea that still dominates our idea in, of, of, of the working class. Even if I talk to social democratic politicians, they will talk of people, white miners, working people working in mining and so on, which in most countries is, is, is pretty gone. In Germany, more people work for McDonald's than in the mining sector. And, and then, but, but, but for these other people, we know much less. And so there the question is, and of course, they, they're often female and they often have a migration background or a non-white. And so that is something that matters for this coalition. Thanks very much. Um, look, I just want to raise one last very large question and don't feel obliged to talk about it at, at, at great length. Um, but coming to what you said towards the end, um, which was, you know, implicitly making a claim about what other countries could learn from the experience of these social democratic parties. And I, I, the starting point for the comment is simply just to observe that there's this incredible variation in the performance of social democratic parties. I mean, you, you emphasised and rightly said that if you aggregate it all, there's been this decline for 10 or 15 years. But another way of looking at it is to say there's some countries, I don't know, New Zealand, Australia and so on, where there's been almost no change at all, that the, the dominant parties of the left remain the Labor parties just as they always have. There are other countries where really quite poor performances have been put in, albeit they are, these parties remain central. So Austria, Germany, and so on. And then there are other countries where catastrophic performances seem to be settling in, possibly the Netherlands, possibly France, and so on. How does your analysis take account of that sort of vast variation in the experience of this family of parties? Yeah, that, that is indeed a, a very difficult question. I guess right, if, if, if you're just looking at, at, at countries and if you compare countries, the first thing, of course, is needs to be to a certain degree electoral institutions, right? We, we see that majoritarian institutions just protect um, mainstream parties to a certain degree until there's a tipping point. The tipping point was very visible in France. And then once you've reached a tipping point, it's also kind of over. Right, I think that in 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 in, uh, in, in these systems that that then it can go very quickly and it's very difficult coming back from that. You saw in the UK in the European Parliament election in 2019 what is possible when right the electoral institutions look differently. Um, so they of course do something, and then then the question is really what what we can do as as political scientists and also what we should do. And I think there we cannot explain single elections. So many, many factors affect single elections. So the perspective that we should take is more is a bit more this medium bracket. And then we can, you know, we can observe how well parties are doing. And this is, this is again, this is what, I, what I said in the end. Um, and I don't necessarily have an answer for it. It's also the question, then, what is the best criterion to evaluate and compare, right? Is, is that vote shares or is it much more what is the probability to lead a progressive coalition given, uh, given that context? And I think this is certainly um, more work should be done in that direction and, and finding out really also what the, what the benchmark uh, there could be. Yeah, listen, thank, thank, thank you very much. Thank you for all those answers. Look, I'm going to um, read out some questions from our audience now. Um, I'm starting with a question from Francis Osborne. Um, who asks, are there any indications of why Die Linke is doing particularly badly compared with other left parties in Germany? 
Um, yes. So there's one problem that I described for the SPD that's even more true uh, for the linker that's H. Um, because the linker, one share of the electorate of the linker is very, very old, right? This is still former GVR supporters uh, who then were the main basis of, uh, of the PDS, um, this one part of the linker. And these voters are very old, and which means that the link is actually losing a sizable share of their electorate to generational replacement, which also means that they then need to find this new strategy in a new environment, um, which means having to bridge this, right, this really old left <laughs> type uh, with a more trying to attract a more liberal uh, you know, liberal progressive or left-wing progressive electorate in, uh, in, in cities. For this special, for this specific election now, that no one, like no one knew the candidates, the, right, which is not a great choice of candidates. Um, there was very little in terms of issue agenda that, you know, that spoke for the linker. And, um, then there was the strategic voting away from the linker to the to the social democrats, plus a lot of infighting. Right? There's this uh, Sarah Wagenknecht, who's a bit of the infam infamous uh, figure in in the party, who's written a very popular book with a kind of a thesis that you know everyone's written a book now in every country about this idea of the you know what she calls the lifestyle left. The left is too much uh, concerned with these progressive second position issues, and because of this, um, the link is losing out. Um, which doesn't um, not much empirically speaks for this because again they lost to these other le lifestyle left uh, parties um, the, and also the Greens right so not much speaks for this but there's a lot of infighting which is never good maybe a final point on the link um, of course a part of their support in the you know from let's say 2005 to 2015 came from their more populist anti-establishment rhetoric. But that's a very volatile electorate, and many of these voters actually left for the AFD. So the, compared, like proportionally, the Linke also lost a, a, a sizable share um, of East German voters to the to the AFD. Okay, thank you very much. So the next question is from Simon Dries, who asks: To what extent are societal changes, by which he means, he says, changes to the workforce as opposed to changes in attitude? important. And he goes on to refer to major societal trends such as the decline of manufacturing jobs, the rise in IT jobs, the increased educated population and so on. Do we have insights into the effect of this? Yeah, so this is something that we see as really central to understanding the, the dilemma of social democratic parties, but also this is something that's very informative, I think, for where, um, where potential strategies should, should be. Um, that is right. One 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 thing that we would argue, and many 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 others do too. Education and occupation affect political attitudes. We know this, right? Higher educated people have more progressive positions, for example. Um, they also affect preferences for how you want the welfare state to look at. So this occupational um, change, the social structural change. Um, affects the preferences of the electorate. And there, I can't emphasize it enough, we're really seeing this massive shift away, a massive educational upgrading, which of course strategically also means something for social democratic parties. Normatively, social democratic parties should always see themselves as representative of the, for, of the West less well-off. 
However, what you also need to see is empirically, if you think, take the UK, for example, right, where many people have written that the that uh, that uh, professionals are overrepresented in the labor electorate now. Well, if it were reversed, then labor would probably lose another five to 10 percent because this is just the but professionals are just a larger electoral group now. Um, and so this structural change also means um that uh, that representational strategies need need to change if you want to be electorally uh, meaningful anymore. And I guess this is also something that Piketty, I think, completely overlooks. Is yes, we have more educated voters among uh, among the support of the left taken as a whole, but we just have more educated people, many many more, right? So this this you need to take the structural account, the structural change into account when you want to explain these representational patterns. Thanks. So now there's a question from Ulysses Kulon, who says Europe was barely mentioned in the campaign. Um, for example, the, in the three TV debates, what should the rest of Europe expect from an ample coalition between the SPD, FDP, and the Green Party? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Of course, a lot of speculation already going on. I think there was a piece by Adam Tuesday today on, on how, how awful it would be for Europe if um, the fight for the finance ministry and if uh, Christian Lindner of the FDP became finance minister. It is absolutely true that not much uh, that Europe really didn't feature in the um, in the campaign at all. It's also true that the next government will still be the German government, right? So we should not expect any type of ra radical change in terms of their uh, EU EU positions and their EU uh, policies. However, especially in this in this macroeconomic outlook. You could really see a change in a German policy um, with Scholz becoming finance minister. Um, it's, it's not only him in the, as the finance minister, but also the elite in the finance ministry and many publicly visible uh, economists. Their really German zeitgeist has changed macroeconomically. The question now is how much can really happen in this coalition where the FDP has a very different approach. And I think that it depends on your favorite uh, favorite theory of how policies are made within coalitions, how much discretion then a potential finance minister, finance minister Linda has versus the Greens who are, who are really at the other end and how much then Scholz in the middle uh, affects this. I'm still mildly optimistic for a change in German policy um, especially in terms of this, you know, the macroeconomic outlook within within the EU and these types of economic European uh, policies, but it's very very difficult to tell. Okay, thanks. So next question is from Charlie Mansell, um, who refers to the fact that forty five percent of young people voted for a liberal choice, either economically liberal or a socially liberal green, and. Charlie Mansell suggests that something similar seemed to happen in the Netherlands too. Is this a wider EU trend, which may have an impact on UK Labor, given that UK Labor currently has over 50% of the youth vote? And given that it's trying to win back its northern red wall voters. Mm -hmm. um. 
So, so it's a, a rather long question, but it's it's to do with yeah. the rise of a, a liberal vote amongst youths, yeah. whether that is a common feature and what impact it might have in the UK case where Labor is heavily freighted with young voters. Yeah. So the, the common European phenomenon really is that uh, we see that younger cohorts are more culturally progressive. Right there, you can really see a cohort change Tom O'Grady from uh, at UCL has, has a great paper on this. You can really see that younger people are more progressive on, uh, on cultural uh, issues. On economic issues, not so much. Um, there, there, there is no, not much of a core change. So this is something that's reflected in this, in this vote choice too, uh, where you can see that the, I mean, the FTP is quite culturally progressive on, on many issues. And especially in, in, if you see the, the CDU as the, as, as the, the competition there. The other economically right-wing party, then they're they're much more progressive and they're just more, more modern. And the city was also very old-fashioned just in the last year. Um, so you see this change to more progressive parties. The reason that labor is so popular um, among younger voters, or one, um, is that again the electoral system keeps to a certain degree people move from 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 moving away. So a labor party that now chose like a Labour Party chooses a strategy to appeal to that red wall, whatever that is, um, by becoming more culturally conservative, risks losing these voters. Um, the, the, the question is how much, because right, the electoral system, um, but you can already see that there are some losses to the Greens. And this is something that has happened in, in, in many other European countries. The question is how strongly this will happen in the UK. And of course, Labour has received this kind of youth boost through momentum and Corbyn and so on. So again, this is something that makes Labour quite uniquely positioned compared to many other social democratic parties in Europe. But the, the, that risk of, we've shown, we can show this in, in, in many things we have, if social democratic parties become more culturally conservative or national authoritarian, they alienate young people. Um, and it, if you alienate them once, there's a high likelihood that they will never come back, right? Because early voting affects um, the voting throughout your life course. Thanks. Uh, I might just follow up on that with what struck me as a paradox about young voters in your presentation. Because on the one hand, you emphasise this huge generational gap and that the SPD's traction amongst young voters was very weak. And on the other hand, in your comments, you emphasised that youth activism had, to a certain extent, returned to the SPD from the earlier period, and you, you referred to the young socialist leader, and, and and they obviously played an important role in electing the kind of the party leaders in the previous period. What, what can you say about that paradox? This, the, the, there seems to be sort of energy and enthusiasm at an activist level, but it doesn't seem in this case, unlike in the UK case, which we were just discussing, to be reflected in voting behaviour. Yeah. The question is when you, like, how, how, how long it takes, or if at all, you can gain this credibility back, mm. right? So you, 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 you have seen that move. Um, but for, merit, for many young people, the, the SPD is just not part of the choice set. Um, it's, it, it, is, it is really that, as I say, they have become alienated from, from the Social Democrats. Um, this has already started a while ago. And, 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 and my favorite example is always, again, this is very specifically German, but there's this young YouTuber called Rizzo who had a, a, a clip about the destruction of the CDU and strongly focusing on, you know, bad policies of the CDU on climate issues. 
the SPD didn't even really feature in that uh, in that video so much. It, it wasn't that they're right. It's not there that they're the good ones at all. He basically said they were very similar to the CDO. It kind of it wasn't. They weren't really even worth talking about. Um, and this was the state of the of the C, of the SPD, uh, you know, until very recently. And the question is, if now in government they can shape the agenda in a way uh, that younger people see them as a, as a vehicle for their political demands again. Um, I, I think the only way of doing this is actually being, a, you know, leading a government. This really is, you can you could see this in Spain, for example. This is the way of, of, of I don't know, not reinventing themselves, but kind of changing how, how they are perceived by, by, by people. Um, and I guess this is, this is important for them now. Thanks. So there's another question here from uh, Joe Crisp, who asks, shouldn't social Democrats care more about losing voters to right-wing parties than potential coalition partners, mm -hmm. for example, the Greens? If so, doesn't this change the strategic consideration about policy programs? Right. Right, so there is this idea that if you, right, if you only lose within your block, then um, that it, it's it's not so bad because then right you can still right that then still you can lead the coalition with those political parties and that's a bit what happened in Denmark in 2019 right the Danish Social Democrats actually lost votes overall but their losses went to other parties in that bloc and um, they gained some voters from from the right and so the the, the block size increased so this is this this is technically true. However, um, these, these dynamics of losses and gains don't work so simply through this really just very simple spatial logic. The, the, the left bloc doesn't necessarily increase in size just if the social democrats uh, move to the right. The best example in this election are the Greens, right? The Greens gained a lot of votes from the right, but not because there was somehow a, a more right-wing party. So this is the first dynamic. It's not really clear how you get these uh, voters across uh, across the aisle. And the second thing is that that block logic, of course, has become much more um, volatile or just less strict in most countries. So the, right, the Greens are in coalition with the CDU in many uh, Länder in Germany. They are in government in Austria with uh, with the ÖVP. So this means that these the right the it is much less clear where these block gains are and if you look at the netherlands and, and in other countries these negotiations will get much more complicated um and so this this calculating on this this block block logic um might right the social democrats might do it and then end up with a coalition they're just not part of because one other party from that nominally left block uh, is in a coalition with uh, the nominally right block Okay, thanks. Um, I've got a couple more questions here. Um, one about a particular table and a, another which I'm just going to sort of amalgamate from various people who've asked a similar sort of thing. And then, you know, um, you've dealt with a large range of questions, so we probably should give you a break shortly. The, the, the question about the table was the one that you you put up saying that, you know, that the Social Democratic vote... Um, the, the, the loss of votes from social democracy was not really to the far right. That was, uh, uh, and, and, but the, the question is that the, it seems that the data was from six countries 
um, most of which had large historic far-right parties. So would this look different if it wasn't? I mean, a paradigm would be Austria, where there's been a big far-right party for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. so, so would that table have looked different if you'd included countries that didn't? I mean, Germany was there as well, I think, and that perhaps is a counterexample. But, but many of those places, Switzerland, Denmark, the Netherlands, have for some time now had large far-right parties. Would that table look different if it was composed of different countries? That's the question. So, I mean, my, my first answer is, I don't know. Um, and then what's important, right, is like, <laughs> I, 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 I like this graph so much because this is a very, right, this is actual data on this, mm -hmm. um, which um, many people seem to be convinced that this, you know, these vote, this vote switching has happened from the social Democrats to the radical right. And this is just there's no empirical evidence that it, that it is the case, or just that it that, that it that it has happened in a you know in a way uh, that that matters and could explain the, the the success of the social democrat. I mean, yes, you mentioned the German case, right? This is a, this is a quite recent uh, recent success of a radical right party. Um, and what the nice thing and I mentioned this during the talk is something that Thomas Kuhn and Daniel Bishop have done. Um, you can have this. You have this long-running panel, the socioeconomic panel in in Germany. So you can look at the today's AfD voters and can kind of see where they came from. And they didn't come from. They, they weren't uh, former social democratic voters. Also not in the 90s and 80s. Um, what's also I think something I like to emphasize in this regard is many many commentators always like to draw these long lines of you know when you say oh they didn't lose them in 2000s to the radical right then they say yeah but this happened much earlier. Well, it, that is unlikely because you have to take into account how long people live. And if you take an if you take the social democratic voter of let's say 1990, and they were on average 45, then they are now on average uh, 75. On average, right? So you you can do the distribution, and so this cannot explain the relationships in in, in today's electorate. Um, and also, socio-structurally, many of these jobs have have disappeared um, so as much as, as valuable as this long-term perspective is from a you know i don't know structurally ordering what has happened um, it, it it really has its limits when you want to explain these micro level dynamics of, of, of political support and i think there we, the, the, that is problematic then Thanks. So, look, I mean, uh, the last question, as I say, I've tried to amalgamate a number of questions here, but the, 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 the issue is the kind of evidence you put forward um, using multi-party and multi-issue space, to what extent is that evidence most applicable to parties that are functioning in a proportional representation election system? And would it have significance for parties in other types of systems as well? Yeah, this, I think this is a very good question. The, I guess the most important thing is that what, what we very strongly find is that the threat to social democratic parties is much higher from the progressive end than from the, the national conservative end. And that threat is what's electorally meaningful. And now the open question is how much does this threat matter in a first-past-the-post system? And of course, there you could say, well, you know, the Social Democratic Party can move to the center. And then, well, they, people don't have another party to go to. 
I think that is really only a convincing argument in the US. Uh, because and, and, and even there, right, you have the, 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 the 2% Green Party voters, but let's not talk about them. But right, I think in the in the in the UK that that is not a given. And 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 the they're this right losing a couple like losing two or three percentage points, that's the difference in, in a in, in a majoritarian system, can actually potentially have a much stronger effect. Than uh, losing two to three percent for a large party uh, in, in in a PR system, so that 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 is a bit another trade-off there, and, and it is uh, it is a valid point that the, these electoral dynamics, the, the electoral system, changes the dynamic a bit in the sense when you can always ask, well, can people leave social democratic parties for a more progressive party? But the answer in the UK to me seems to be uh, yes. Uh, and it, this is something that seems to me a, a, a quite visible, visible threat. And you can see, you, I mean, you saw in France how this can happen. Uh, again, this is a two-stage system, also differences, but the, the, these changes can happen. Um, and if they happen, they are more likely to happen to more progressive parties and not to national authoritarian parties. Well, listen, thank you so very much. I mean, not only have you given us a rich and stimulating presentation, but you've fielded an incredible wide range of questions. I mean, I think, I think we, we got some, some rich data about the results, about why you think they came about. And then you build out a larger picture, a bigger picture about some of the effects that might be relevant, not just in the German election, but more generally for social democratic parties in their competition with Greens, but, but also with others. And you, you ended with some striking conclusions, um, which are food for thought, I think, for us. Notably, that what matters now is that these social democratic parties are strong enough to lead a coalition. And secondly, that progressive positions are necessary for them not to lose out in the competition to become that largest party. Well, thank you again very much. I want to just end by, on behalf of everyone, thanking our speaker, Dr. Tariq Abu Achabi. Thank you very much. <laughs>